This morning I was talking to Peter and we were remarking of how warm it was. I remembered a story that I was told many years ago back in old Princeton Seminary that, uh, you know, it was the custom of that those days for men to wear waistcoats and vests and so forth and other accoutrements. Uh, a well-dressed gentleman wore those regularly. And uh, Samuel Miller, who was the first professor at Princeton, would come to class dressed in, in that way. But on a warm day, there, there were pegs on the wall for people to hang uh, things. On a warm day, he would take off his waistcoat and hang it on one of the pegs on the wall. On a really warm day, he would take off his vest and hang that next to his coat on the wall. And on a really hot day, he would take off his wig. Uh, I'm not going to take my toupee off. If I, I don't have one, but, I, but it's warm. Well, let us turn in our Bibles to 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 10. And I've called this message, We Walk by Faith, taken from one of the verses in this passage. When many of us think of faith, we think of the initial act of believing. We think we are justified by faith. We come to know Christ and we put our trust in him. And that is the, if you will, the initial act of faith that comes about through the grace of God. But Paul has something more expansive in mind here in this passage when he tells us that we walk by faith and not by sight. That use of that word walking means the way we live our lives. The conduct of our, of our life is by faith and not by sight. Let us join in prayer for the Lord to open our eyes to the truth of his word. Father, again we come to you this day. We have worshipped you in the morning and we come together in, evening, uh, in the evening for our time of worship as well. And again we pray that by your spirit you would open our eyes and hearts, that you would help us to understand the meaning of the text that you have given us this evening. It is your holy word. It is powerful and quick. It's alive, sharper than a two-edged sword. It discerns what is in our hearts. It reveals these things to us. But it, when it is accompanied by your word, it is powerful, and it accomplishes all your will. We pray this would be true tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 10. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we'd be, we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away with the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. 
So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Here we end this reading of God's word. We know that if the tent that is our earthly home, what is Paul talking about, the tent that is our earthly home? Well, he talks about tents and he talks about houses. When we talk about a tent, what do you think of? Think of a camping trip, maybe? Think of maybe a military maneuver where you have to live in a tent for a little while. We usually think of a tent, though, as being somewhat temporary, a temporary dwelling, something that can be packed up, rolled up, and put on a a truck or a camel if you're in the Middle East and, and taken somewhere else. Of course, probably Paul has in mind more the idea. Of course, Paul was a tent maker, wasn't he? He made tents for a living to support himself in the ministry. Uh, We might think in the Middle East of the Bedouin tribes that are migratory and they live in tents. Abraham lived in a tent, not yet receiving the land, the promised land himself. We think of a tent as temporary. And Paul uses those that word tent, I think, three times in this passage. Uh, in that to signify the, the dwelling place we have while we are apart from the Lord. That is our body. And the context of the chapter, the passage, becomes clear that what Paul is referring to is our physical dwelling, our physical, uh, the physical aspect of our being, which is temporary. This mortal body will one day cease to function, and it will be laid aside. It will be changed, and what is mortal, according to 1 Corinthians 15, what is mortal will put on immortality. What is imperfect, what is, what is the seed that is planted in the ground will rise up again in new life. The tent is Paul's image, his, his figure of speech, if you will, for what is temporary about us, our bodies. It is our earthly home, and it may and it will be destroyed. But then he contrasts the tent with a house, contrasting the tent with a house. And the house, of course, signifies something more permanent, something that will not be folded up and rolled up and carted away. It is permanent. He also uses the term a a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in in the heavens. He calls it our heavenly dwelling. We have an earthly dwelling, and we have a heavenly dwelling. This this contrast sets the scene for what Paul is actually writing about. He's actually writing about the fact that we believe in the resurrection of, of the dead. What is one of the articles of faith? I have to tell you, when I was laying out the worship service, I did not choose Lord's Day 7 as our confession of faith because I wanted to coordinate it with the message or the scripture reading. I chose it because I looked back in my bulletins and saw that the last time I was here, we did Lord's Day 3. And okay, 3, 4, 5, 6. Oh, did it. this week is number 7. 
But it turns out in God's providence that it happened to be just the right Lord's Day to read the Heidelberg Catechism because it deals with faith. What is true saving faith? What are the articles of faith? What, what do we need to believe? We believe in the resurrection. I want you to raise your hand tonight if you have ever seen anyone raised from the dead. How many of you have seen someone raised from the dead? Did you go to a, a revival meeting? Actually, pastors hope to see people raised from the dead every Sunday, but that's a different thing. <laughs> no, I have not ever seen anyone raised from physical death. I have not yet seen a resurrection. But I believe with absolute certainty that there will be a resurrection. I believe with certainty that there will be a day when the trumpet of the Lord shall sound, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And those of us who are yet alive at that moment in history will rise together with them to be with the Lord. And for this reason, Paul says, we do not grieve at death the way others believe, grieve who have no hope. My old friend who was an elder in our church at Beverly, his name was Herb Pink. Uh, he passed away several years ago, lived into his 90s. But he always said, the day that I pass away is my, it's not my death, it's my graduation. It's my graduation. We believe these things to be true, even though we have not seen them. We believe many things to be true, even though we have not seen them. We believe that this house, this tent that we live in, will one day fall apart, be dissolved back into its elements, but we believe that the dead in Christ will, be rised for, will rise first. In Romans chapter 8, there's kind of a parallel passage here. Paul is, he mentions faith, he mentions these things that we believe uh, in the context of the resurrection. In Romans chapter 8, he has a, a passage which has many parallel thoughts. And let me just read it to you and see as I read this if you can pick out the parallel thoughts in Romans 8 to what we just read in 2 Corinthians 5. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth com uh, comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? Well, one of the parallel thoughts here is he uses the word hope instead of faith. Who hopes for what he sees? But we still hope. We have not seen it. 
We have not received this adoption as sons yet, which is the resurrection of our bodies, but we, we hope for it, and our hope will not be disappointed. Our hope is, not, is, is certain. It's not, he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. It's, he loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Why? Why do I know that Jesus loves me? For the Bible tells me so. Remember, true faith believes all that the scriptures teach. Paul parallels in this passage, and he parallels by way of contrast here, the the groaning and futility and the temporary nature of our existence now with the freedom and redemption of our bodies and the resurrection. He writes in this passage also about the Spirit's work as a guarantee. And also, while Paul uh, writes about walking by faith in uh, 2 Corinthians 5, here he, again, as I said, uses the word hope as the opposite of seeing. Well, let's talk about hope, faith, and knowing. Knowing. Notice in, in, in 2 Corinthians 5, he starts out by saying, we know, for we know, for we know. Romans 8 starts off similarly. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth. He's not saying, well, maybe, but I, I'm assured of this. I, I know this to be true. How do you know? Faith grasps and becomes knowledge. What's the relationship between faith and knowing? As the Heidelberg Catechism says, there's, there is a faith, or there's a, an aspect of faith that is, is knowing, is knowledge. And there are things that we need to know in order to be saved, in order to walk by faith. There are things that we need to know. But you can flip that around, too, and saying there are things we know because we believe. There was a theologian in the Middle Ages called Anselm, Anselm of Canterbury. They used to kind of take the name of their city, of their their place of origin or their place of work. So this is Anselm of Canterbury. And he writes this. He writes, in Latin, he writes this, Credo ut intelligam. I believe in order to know. I believe in order to know. Or so that I, I know. This is more like what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 5. We believe things, not because we've seen them. We know things that are true, not because we have seen them, but because we believe. And we walk by faith. And he contrasts that with walking by sight. We walk by faith and not by sight. Think about the nature of faith. According to the Bible, according to Scripture, not according to any, any uh, definition I could think of, but the Bible actually gives us its own definition of faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, it says this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Notice the blending of faith and hope here. 
the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It's as if the author of Hebrews 11.1 1 took that a verse from Romans 8 and a verse from 2 Corinthians 5 and kind of smooshed them together. He blends together faith, hope, conviction, knowing, all of this together in one verse. Things not seen because we don't walk by sight. We walk by faith. A little later, he says this. And again, I want to ask you, how many of you were present when the earth began? How many of you were there at the dawn of creation? How many of you maybe heard with your ears God say, let there be light? How many of you were there and saw the earth dark and unformed and unfilled before God began to bring order out of the chaos and fill the earth with living things? Any, any hands raised? No, but, but the author of Hebrews says this. He tells us, by faith we believe the worlds were framed by God's command. We weren't there to see it, but we believe it to be true. Well, I have to ask you another question. How do we believe this? Where do we come by that knowledge that God created or framed the worlds by his powerful word? We find it in the Bible. We find it in Scripture. And because I can read the Bible, excuse me, and I believe the Bible by God's grace, I know that certain things are true. Well, there are many people that say, oh, Pastor Pontier, you're obviously not a scientist. Because science has shown that this is not true. The science has shown that uh, everything began with a big bang. Well, actually, it kind of did. God said it, and bang, it happened. <laughs> but that's not what they mean. Except we've just sent a big telescope up in the skies, and it's sending back pictures. And I just read this past week that some of these pictures are challenging some of the assumptions and teachings of the Big Bang Theory. Now, it's not mean they're all going to be converted into creationists, but it means they're having to go back and rethink large parts of the Big Bang Theory. Maybe you read those articles, too. A couple of weeks ago, I was preaching at our church in La Mirada, California, which in some ways is your parent church, because you used to be under their session many, many, many years ago. And uh, I, I, I mentioned this passage in the, mess, in the sermon, and a man came up to me later, and he also sent me an email saying, I'm, a, I'm a, a biologist, I've got doctorate degrees, I've got all of these things, and I'm reading this, and I'm thinking, oh, he's going to tell me I'm all wrong, what I said about creation. He said, no. One of the first things we, know about, we, we ought to know about science is what we don't know yet. And it ought to fill us with a little humility in our pronouncements. He said, no, I'm perfectly content to be a 24-hour-day creationist and believe that the Bible is going to be proven true. Well, I actually don't have to wait for it to be proven true. 
because I know what the Bible says, and the Bible is God's word, and God, who is truth itself, does not lie. He does not mislead, nor does he play games with us. Pardon me for taking a little digression here, but you got me on one of my favorite issues that I just love to gnaw on. And that is this whole idea that somehow we have to find an alternate interpretation of the Bible in order to somehow get us off the hook with the scientists. No! Hold on to faith. Hold on to what the scripture says. God doesn't play verbal games with us in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. He's not playing a game with us waiting for some scholar to come along and figure out a new interpretation that comes along 2,000 years after the time of Christ, and somehow the church has gotten it wrong for 2,000 years, and we needed the insights of these present-day theorists to tell us what the Bible actually meant. No, no, no. God, who is truth itself, can speak plainly in his word and tell us exactly what he did. And we ought to believe it. He does not play games with us and keep his truth hidden from us. He lays it out openly so that we might believe and know. And this is really getting to heart, to the heart of what Paul means when he says we walk by faith and not by sight. By the way, I could use a whole lot of other illustrations. Just that that creation issue stuck in my craw. By faith, we believe, and we believe in order that we might know. It's true with the resurrection, because we have not seen a resurrection ourselves with our own eyes. We've read in the Bible about resurrections, Christ himself being the the greatest example. And yet, Christ raised people from the dead, and others were raised from the dead. We know because we've read the Bible, and we believe the Bible to be true. Because we believe what the Bible says about God, about Christ, about sin and salvation and eternal life, we know that these things are true. We know there will be a resurrection. We know that we will have immortal bodies that are no longer under the curse. We know that we will be with the Lord But wait, there's more. Twice in this passage in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul has a very interesting phrase that he uses. It says, we are of good, what, good cheer? No, good courage. Courage is different than cheer. I mean, courage can be cheerful. I actually think that we who are members of the Church of Jesus Christ ought to be happy warriors, cheerful warriors. We know how the story ends. But Paul says we are of good courage. Courage is that quality that faces opposition and faces danger and faces the threat of persecution and the threat of punishment, of rejection, of 
being made fun of and so forth, all those things, and it overcomes because we are of good courage. Why are we of good courage? Because we walk by faith and not by sight. See, it doesn't just end with knowledge. It doesn't just end, I believe, in order that I may know. And because of what I know, I am of good courage in this world. While I'm still here, while I am still in this tent, in this world, and walking by faith and not by sight, I have good courage because I know what the future holds. Ultimately, I don't know every up and down, and I don't know every twist and turn that history will take, but I do know where it ends up. I do know where it ends up, and therefore, we are of good courage. We have courage to meet the opposition, courage to overcome the temptations, courage to maintain our testimony, even in the face of danger. We are progressing along a path of increasing rejection in our society, isolation. I I made a reference, and maybe I shouldn't have this morning, to the backdrop of the president's recent speech. And everybody, it seems, noticed that, you know, the red lighting and the shadow of soldiers, marines in the background, and so forth. There's a, there's a, a message in that staging. But the words were important as well. You might think it was just a, a speech against what are called the, the MAGA... Re- I don't even know if I'm a MAGA Republican. I, I have my doubts about some of those things. But in, to the extent that he defined what that opposition was, which he defined as a threat to our democracy, a threat to the rule of law, a threat to our way of life, he also included those who believe in the sanctity of life and the sanctity of marriage. Now, he didn't say sanctity of life and sanctity of marriage. He said those who would deny a woman her right to choose and those who would deny you the right to love whoever you wanted to love. He dressed it up in nice words. But the fact is, that's who he was talking about, people who believe in the sanctity of life and the sanctity of marriage. And it doesn't take a stretch to say that our own president has now defined many of us as enemies of the state. Do you, th- do you hear the footsteps of persecution? Now, I've known many Marines in my lifetime, and they, they always say you never leave the Marine Corps. Once a Marine, always a Marine. I had a friend who, uh, who was a Marine, and he said if they called me back tomorrow to serve, I would be there with my old uniform, ready to answer that call. Because you never leave the Marine Corps. I thought it was a shocking display and a subtle threat in the staging to have military people in back in the shadows. And that was something that was in the shadows of that staging were the military figures. And it sends a message. You are the enemies of the state. And I have a military. 
Okay, maybe I'm reading way too much into that. But I wonder if you hear the footsteps of persecution. It's one thing to have political disagreements. It takes it a whole step further when you define those who disagree with you as enemies of our democracy. But we walk by faith. I may see what I saw the other night, but that doesn't tell me what I believe to be true. That's sight. And that sight would raise all kinds of fears and concerns in my heart. And those words would do likewise. But if I'm walking by faith, I know that Jesus Christ will be victorious, that his righteousness will be vindicated, and the faith of his people will be vindicated on that great day of the Lord. And so we are of good courage. And good courage means maintaining your witness, not compromising the truth of God's word, doing so with a cheerful and, if, if you will, happy heart. Because we walk by faith and not by sight. We have a, a church in Neon, Kentucky, that just a, a few weeks ago was flooded out. The building virtually destroyed. There are teams of people working to uh, clean out the, the damage and to put new walls up and rebuild their sanctuary so they can start worshiping again. You know, if they were walking by sight, they would have said all is lost. The whole pastor's library was lost. Oh, a dagger to the heart. The whole library was lost. Peter, maybe we should cull our books out before you move and before I have to move someday, and we should send them off to Neon and start the pastor's library up again. <laughs> um, nevertheless, if they walked by sight and not by faith, they might say, you know, all is lost. I go down and look at that sanctuary that we used to worship in, and it's all destroyed, and all our hymnals are gone, all my books are gone. I, the Lord has... has shown us that maybe we should just give up. Maybe this wasn't the right time or place to plant a church here in Neon, Kentucky. If we walked by sight, we would be tempted to think that. But we walk by faith. And because we walk by faith, we believe that what God has commanded us to do, we should do. Go into all the world, proclaim the gospel, disciple the nations, teach everyone to all, all that I have taught you, Jesus said, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He has sent us into the world for the gathering and perfecting of his saints. He has established his visible church for that purpose. And by faith, because we believe these things to be true, we persevere even when there is a tragedy such as took place there. Because we walk by faith and not by sight. And we are of good courage. And Paul says this at the end of this passage. Therefore, we endeavor to please God. That's, that's where good courage leaves us, endeavoring to please God. Not the world, not the expectations of, of uh, mankind, but to please God. That's where we end up. 
And we know that there will be a day of judgment when we will all stand before the throne of judgment, the throne of Christ, and be judged for what we have done in the body, in this tent, whether good or evil. So we are of good courage, and we make it our aim to please God. That's the application of walking by faith and not by sight. We endeavor, we make it our aim to please God, not man, not circumstances, but we please God. We persevere in faith and life, and we know that by his grace we will stand before God in that day of judgment with Christ as our advocate. Psalm 1 reminds us that the the blessed man is the one who meditates in God's word, who believes God's law. He, he, he shuns the path of the wicked. He does not sit or stand or commune with the wicked and the unbelief of, of his day, whatever it might be. But he meditates on the word of God. And Psalm 1 says, this blessed man will stand in the day of judgment. This blessed man believes he has a savior. By the way, what if Job walked by sight and not by faith? In the midst of his suffering, he's lost his family, he's lost his wealth, his possessions, he's lost his health, he is reduced to sitting in the, in the, amidst the broken pottery of his home, scraping his boils with shards of broken pottery. And on top of that, his wife says, well, Job, and she's, by the way, walking by sight and not by faith. Job, why don't you just curse God and die? He doesn't listen to her. He actually rebukes her. Now, husbands, doesn't, that doesn't mean you can go home and rebuke your wives when you, well, you may have, but no, I, I don't want to get off into that. I'll just get into trouble. <laughs> And then, on top of everything else, he has these friends. What does he say in the middle of that? I know that my Redeemer lives. And it's actually almost right smack dab in the middle of the book of Job. I know that my Redeemer lives. And... Even though this body will be destroyed by worms and it will die, it will be put in the ground, I know that with my own, in my own flesh I will see God. My eyes will see him and not another's. That is walking by faith and not by sight. Job had every reason in the world to take his wife's advice. Get it over with, Job. Curse God and die. He says, no, you're talking like one of the foolish women. No. He also says this. Though he slay me, yet I will serve him. That's faith. Walk by faith 
not by sight, brothers and sisters. Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. John says this, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. We make it our aim to please God. This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Faith is the victory that overcomes the world. This is our victory. Not my strength, not my good intentions, but my faith. And I'll walk by faith and not by sight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for these words of Scripture and pray that you would drive them into our hearts, our consciences, that we would indeed walk by faith, not by sight, that we would indeed make it our aim to please you and to stand uh, with the righteous in the day of judgment. For it's in Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.